everybody. Welcome to Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce. Today is the next episode in my series on the COVID-19 pandemic and how it affects women's health. And our first episode was more of a general discussion on women's health, but today we're going to be more specific and talk about pregnancy and being pregnant during the pandemic. Because of that, my special guest star today is the director of the University of Pennsylvania Maternal Fetal Network in New Jersey and is a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania, where he has worked for over 25 years. And he is the medical director of the Maternal Fetal Medicine Division at Penn Medicine Princeton. And please welcome Dr. Robert Debs. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Now, you said I could call you Bob, so that's uh, that still goes, right? Absolutely. All right, good. I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to insult you by calling you Bob. You could call me Dr. Pierce, by the way. Just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. All right, so um, Dr. Debs, today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about pregnancy in this pandemic of the COVID-19. So you have like a general uh, statement. I'll get into some specific questions that I've compiled from patients and colleagues to go over. But do you have anything like, uh, like sure. it's an overall statement? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important to put things in perspective. This is very interesting times for uh, both pregnant women and, and everybody, and we're all going through this together. Um, although I think it's very important to keep in mind that the vast majority of people, including pregnant women who get COVID-19, uh, do very well. Um, in fact, in our health system, um, we've we started to do uh, universal screening of pregnant women on uh, admission to the hospital at a couple of our hospitals previously, and now we've expanded that to other hospitals. But we have about 400 plus pregnant women with positive COVID tests, and a very, very few, very small number of women who got uh, very ill. Uh, matter of fact, um, it's commonly known in our in high-risk pregnancy circles that pregnant women are um, have changes in their bodies that um, make them somewhat at higher risk for severe illness from almost any uh, virus, uh, such as influenza or the flu. Um, uh, but we, we haven't seen uh, severity of illness be significantly higher than we would have expected. In fact, it may even be lower because when you when you look at the um, the uh, uh, the number of people who were sick in other populations, like the elderly, um, and uh, get admitted to the hospital, their numbers are much higher uh, than pregnant women. Um, and so we think that um, uh, from that regard, although we're cautious because we don't have all of the information, um, we feel that neither are pregnant women at higher risk to get the disease. And when they get it, the vast majority do well and heal from it without the need for hospitalization. Okay. Uh, well, that, actually, with your overall statement, you ran through a lot of my questions, but uh, all good. So, so you're saying that because we've been hearing that pregnant women are a specific high-risk group um, Correct. over the general population. So, so, well, then what makes them high-risk? If you're saying that majority sure. do well, so, etc., what makes them high risk? Yeah, so I mean, we've always known that uh, there's a couple of things that happen in pregnancy that are uh, unique. The first is is that the mother has to protect the baby, and in protecting the baby, um, because part of the baby, let's face it, part of the baby or 
at least half of the DNA from the baby comes from another person, comes from the father who's foreign to the mother's body. And so um, we always have wondered throughout the decades, you know, why doesn't every mother reject part of the baby because part of the baby is certainly foreign to her body. Uh, and that's because pregnancy um, reduces your ability to, to uh, have an immune reaction against certain things. Uh, and it's really a protective mechanism. It's the way nature has designed um, pregnancy so that babies are completely protected in their environment. And so their immune systems are, um, we use the word suppressed or downregulated, but uh, for most people that means that your immune system is not acting as, as strongly um, as when you're not pregnant. And that's a defense mechanism. So um, the second thing that happens because of that is that when you get uh, very ill with a, with a viral infection, your body may have a more difficult time fighting that viral infection. Um, and so we've always known that throughout the years. And, and we, we know that every flu season that comes around, there's a number of pregnant women uh, who get very ill from the flu. Um, and so we've been worried about that with COVID-19 as well. And, and in, in our experience, we have had a very few, a very small number of very sick women However, that number appears to be lower than we would have expected. So now, you know, from my perspective, it's almost like, um, you know, two different things going on. A, because of this immune suppression, the, uh, the pregnant woman may be more susceptible to uh, getting infected with the disease. But on the flip side, maybe... It seems like it's the immune response, the excess of immune response with specifically COVID that maybe the pregnant women are getting the benefit because they're not getting that overwhelming response that seems to be uh, causing a lot of the respiratory issues, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, and, and you're exactly right. And, and um, But there's, there's some very interesting things about COVID. And we're learning a lot every day, and and, and we, we're doing. A, there's a lot of research that's ongoing uh, about these topics, so there is a lot that we don't know. So to make, so for us to, to, and for me or anybody to make blanket statements right now about how a pregnant woman reacts to this virus is somewhat premature. Um, and the reason is is that um, COVID appears to have. Um, uh, some predisposition to in uh, affecting um, predominantly um, certain types of receptors in a, in a body, in your body, and a lot of them have to do with your kidney function. Um, and pregnant women have um, an imbalance, uh, if you will, of some of these receptors in their body during pregnancy. So, for instance, we're learning that women who get COVID may be at higher risk for getting high blood pressure during their pregnancy compared to other women. But a lot of this information is is um, is premature. Um, every pregnant woman, when they get infected with a virus, has um, the risk of having leaky blood vessels. And those leaky blood vessels can lead to uh, more severe lung problems. Um, and so we've always worried about that. And, and in fact, we have taken care of a very small number of women who've gotten very ill from COVID. But when we look at the big picture uh, of patients, it's not as much as we would have expected. It's not the number that we would have expected uh, from such a severe uh, viral infection, the way it's affecting other populations like the elderly and those with diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. 
Um, so um, there's some caution there. I think we're, you know, the numbers will will uh, will tease out in the end because this is certainly nowhere near over. Um, but uh, we're learning a lot every day. So it's, you know, we're cautious. We don't think pregnant women get infected at a higher rate than other people. Um, and but we are cautious to know that there is a possibility that they may have some other severe diseases that occur because of it. Yeah, I think you brought up an important point. I mean, I guess especially as a as a medical show, you know, it's hard to comment on a a new process that we don't have all the answers to. So we're trying to, I guess, use our best uh, judgment. But I guess we should be cautious that we don't have all the answers and. Nor will we for a while, if I'm not if uh, I'm not correct. That's correct, and and you know I think it's like I first said when when we started talking is that we have to put things in perspective, and everybody's afraid of getting sick, and God forbid everybody's afraid of losing a loved one. Um, we've always known every year in the United States and other countries that influenza affects a portion of the population. Thirteen thousand people died last year from influenza. And pregnant women, uh, when there's an outbreak of uh, different types of flus, uh, more frequently than others get in, get uh, severe lung problems. And in, in fact, there is unfortunately a number of deaths that occur every year in the United States. However, during this pandemic in the United States, although we have seen some uh, people get very ill and, and the death rate for elderly and other populations is, is high, um, we haven't had one mortality of pregnant a pregnant woman in the United States reported so far during this pandemic. So that's a, a, a good sign. It's a little premature, but it's not. Um, it's it is a good sign. And both of us are knocking on wood as as the, that's we right. see that. Yeah, God forbid. So you know, everybody's afraid of it, and we've had lots of anxious pregnant women in our offices, and we're all anxious about it as well, and the stress level. Uh, both locally and in the country, is rising every single day that this thing goes on. Uh, but people should be reassured about a couple of things. Number one, most people get very mild illness, if, if ill at all, and don't have to go to the hospital. And number two, pregnant women don't get it at a greater rate. Um, and although some women do get ill, we haven't seen the large number of um, women who come to the disease like uh, other viruses that we've seen. Tell me, so tell me, next question that my patients ask is what about transmission to the baby at birth? So we sure. you know in the beginning of this pandemic, we said no, and then we've heard of cases that has happened. What, what are your thoughts? So there's, there's a couple uh, caveats to that. So mother-to-child transmission of coronavirus is very, very unlikely. However, um, after birth babies are susceptible to getting the virus from other adults, including their mother. And we're learning uh, in, in, in some of the highest uh, prevalence populations, like for instance, the study came out of New York at a Columbia University that showed that close to 15% of asymptomatic people coming in for labor and delivery were actually COVID positive. And so they screened all pregnant women uh, at one large university hospital and found that that to be the case. We're screening lots of people now, and we haven't uh, published our numbers yet, but we expect that it's going to be very similar in most inner city populations. And those numbers will likely be smaller as you go out to more rural 
and uh, uh, less populated areas. But um, there's a number of women who have uh, the virus. They don't know they have the virus, and they can pass it to their newborn after birth. However, there's been at least one case in the country of what they think is a what we what we term vertical transmission. That means that the virus was transmitted inside the womb. It appears to be very, very rare. Um, and the caveat to this discussion is that the, the testing to prove it is what you've heard about called antibody testing. Right. And so if a baby is born and already has antibodies that suggest that the infection was weeks or even a month or two old, um, then uh, we, would, we would surmise that it came the baby got it in the womb. The problem is, is that antibody testing has been fraught with a lot of false positives as well as false negatives, and it has not been perfected yet. And of course, we see this playing out every night on, on, uh, on news shows like CNN and Fox, in that the antibody testing just isn't there yet um, to be uh, very, very highly sensitive and highly predictive. So whether that case is real or not, we don't know. But there has not been reported a large number of babies infected in the womb. So, okay, you, now you touched on this uh, subject of universal screening for pregnant women. So if that becomes a trend, which sounds like it may be a trend, what are we going to do? Let's say the, the mother is positive, but she has no symptoms and she's going to uh, she's in labor and she's going to deliver a baby. What do we do with the baby? Can the baby stay with the mother? Do the, does the baby have to be separated? What about breastfeeding, etc.? Sure. So um, those are all great questions, and I think we're all learning together about these things. Um, the uh, the first inclination, of course, is a, a period of separation, um, and that's a, a a common medical intervention. Of course, that's quite disturbing. Uh, to families and mothers, but if a mother is uh, COVID positive and asymptomatic, then the baby needs to be evaluated and checked out. And of course, the baby is at risk for um, getting the virus from the mother. And we don't know a lot about newborn babies and how they respond to getting infected with COVID. And the, that information we're learning over time. So the cautious approach is a period of separation um, what's very interesting is that uh, COVID has not been detected in breast milk in, in all of the cases of mothers who have been COVID positive. There is no, um, there is no uh, reported positive COVID tests from the milk itself. What we don't know for sure is whether mothers with COVID can spread the virus from their breast milk and feeding it to a child after birth. In other words, the virus doesn't appear to get into the breast milk while the baby's in the womb and the breast and before the baby's born. And when you test the breast milk, it appears to be clean. Um, but after birth, then you have a whole lot of other variables because now you have an infected mother and you have other secretions and you have the baby on possibly on her breast. And so the baby could get COVID virus from other means, like the secretions from her nose or her mouth. So that's a that's a, um, a, a difficult dilemma. And I think most places are recommending a separation. Um, some 
families find that extremely difficult, of course, and we all we all appreciate that. Um, and um, uh, so some moms have refused that. And so we, we you know, sort of um, try and appease everybody and have the baby six feet away in a, in a bassinet in the mom's room with another family member who's protected with a mask, caring for the baby until they can sort out uh, the severity of illness and whether the baby is uh, infected or not. Uh, but those are those are all challenging, challenging questions. I don't know that there's a right answer, but I think most places in the country and in the world actually are taking the same approach of a very cautious approach in that there's a, at least an initial period of separation. Yeah. So uh, as you can tell, that uh, creates a lot of stress around the mom. But and again, it comes back to, you know, we don't have all the answers. We're, you know, doing the best we can with the information we have. But uh that's right. We, we don't have all those answers yet. Um, should women delay attempting pregnancy during this time? I mean, uh, yeah, you know, it's a great question. I mean, I think that it is. Um, uh, there's there's uh, lots of ways to approach that question. I think that it makes a lot of sense for um, uh, families to hold it off on planned attempts at childbearing during a pandemic. The first reason is, is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of restrictions in what, what we're able to do. There's a lot of restrictions in access to the healthcare system. And uh, pregnant women also take up a good portion of medical uh, um, equipment and so forth during pregnancy. So um, to not stress out the the healthcare systems until the pandemic is way, uh, way on its way down and and at the bottom of the curve makes a lot of sense. Most reproductive age women and families certainly would not be harmed, nor um, uh, uh, can they not wait a year or so until a vaccine is available to have uh, more children or to start a family. But there is certain populations, of course, where that may be difficult. For instance, the fertility population of women who have, uh, who are older and have a uh, you know, their biological clock is ticking and they don't want to wait. So it, 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 there's other things that are available. Of course, if they have to undergo in vitro, they can freeze embryos and then don't transfer them until the pandemic is on its way down and a lot of the, the, the restrictions are lifted. Um, it, it, it certainly makes sense. And I think um, most people would agree that uh, to plan uh, a, an event that's going to take up um medical resources at a time when medical resources are scarce does not make a lot of common sense. And so waiting a short period of time uh, uh, is, uh, makes a lot of sense for everybody. Uh, following up to that question, is it safe to deliver in a hospital? Because uh, I know a lot of my, no, yeah. uh, a number of my patients are uh, highly considering or have transferred to a home birth midwife. What are your thoughts on the safety of being in the hospital, the same hospital that has COVID patients uh, to have sure. a baby in? Well, I would say that um, a couple of things. Um, home birth um, certainly uh, can be safe for, for a very small number of women who are extremely low risk for uh, complications, taking into consideration the long-term implications. And, and we know that there's studies to suggest that uh, babies born from home births have a higher risk of certain complications, including mortality in the first year or two of life. Those are somewhat controversial. 
Um, but the safest place to give birth in the United States is in a well-equipped uh, maternity suite in a hospital. That holds true for COVID-19 uh, times. And the reason is, is that we're taking, and you know, and I know that we work in hospitals every day, every single healthcare worker is taking every single precaution to protect not only themselves, but also their patients. And um, we have not yet reported uh, transmission of COVID during this entire pandemic. And in many places in the country that we're at the peak, if not just getting over the peak of the curve in New York and North Jersey, and um, and um, and California and Seattle, um, that uh, there's been transmission in the hospital uh, from a mother who was negative and then uh, got the virus while she was in the hospital. So yes, it's very safe to deliver in the hospital. It's the safest place for both mothers and babies. Um, and uh, I would not urge women to deliver at home during the pandemic for that reason. Yeah, it was, uh, my last episode was with Dr. Proctor, and we went over the same issue. And we said because uh, of the stringent screening uh, of not just uh, patients, but of medical staff in the hospital, it may be one of the, one of the safer places uh, to be. Can you know? Can say again? That's conjecture, but it's great to you know. I went uh, I went to the supermarket the other day and. Half the people were were either not wearing masks or they had the mask on, but but not their nose. Like so, I think uh, to me uh, the, the supermarket was much more dangerous than a than a, uh, a hospital where everybody is like basically grilled at the front door. Uh, exactly, uh, you there's know. a lot of screening. Hospitals are screening almost everybody who goes to the front door, and um, they're screening them with thermal scanners and they're screening them with uh, questionnaires and. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that um, from that perspective, you're you're just as safe or safer uh, coming into the hospital. But that said, you know, we, we have to continue to limit the number of people coming into the healthcare system for a variety of reasons. One is asymptomatic exposures. And the second is uh, utilization of, of healthcare resources during a time when the resources are becoming scarce. I just learned today that uh, dialysis uh, centers are having a problem uh, with equipment now because uh, the elderly, uh, 30% of elderly who are admitted to the hospital are having severe uh, renal insufficiency and require dialysis for a period of time. And they're running out of equipment in dialysis centers. So it's, um, you know, the resources for a lot of things uh, are dwindling, uh, which is not understandable, but I think we'll, we'll get over that at some point. But um, so we have to be cautious about coming into the healthcare system for things that are not necessary. And, you know, like, for instance, don't go to the ER because you have a sniffle or a cold or a fever. You know, if you're not short of breath, call your doctor or call your primary or use one of the telemedicine vehicles that almost everybody has access to now um, to, to uh, get assessed and use one of the drive through centers and so forth. Right, right. So what now... I just touched on the screening of healthcare workers. What if you're a healthcare worker and you're pregnant? What sure. uh, What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's an interesting time. I mean, so we've been asked this question from the very beginning because we take care of a lot of uh, pregnant women, and of course, a lot of our uh, a lot of the employees of the hospital come to us for ultrasounds and things like that. 
and we always are asked this question. Um, so you, as of now, there's no recommendation that pregnant women don't work uh, in the healthcare centers, in the healthcare setting. Um, however, it does make sense that if that uh, number one, if if pregnant women are in a unit that has that is like a COVID unit, that they might be redeployed. There's lots of other places uh, that they can work. Um, other places in the hospital are, are 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 very safe, and everybody's taking the precautions. So there's no reason that they uh, don't. There's no reason that they can't work. But um, it makes sense, particularly for their comfort level to work in units that aren't, don't have a high COVID census. Um, and there's lots of things for uh, them to be redeployed to do. And, and you know, I know that our staff in, in, uh, in our ultrasound office are being redeployed to work in different units as well. Um, not that they're happy about it, but, <laughs> um, right. but um, so the, uh, so far, you know, we haven't had any reported pregnant women working in a hospital setting in the United States uh, reportedly turned positive from an exposure at work or from a patient. Um, so that hasn't been an event that's been uh, publicized. Um, so, you know, I think that pregnant women, particularly healthcare workers, can feel safe in their work environment, but it certainly makes sense that they uh, might be able to take themselves out of a very high, uh, highly positive COVID uh, ward or COVID ICU or one of the um, uh, you know, in some hospitals, like I can tell you, at the University of Pennsylvania, um, there's a large number of patients in the hospital, probably 15 to 20 percent, maybe 26 percent of all the patients in the hospital are COVID patients now. In, right. in New Jersey, um, in one hospital in South Jersey, not even a hot spot compared to northern Jersey, um, 36 percent of the hospitalized patients are COVID patients. Right, uh, right, at a very right, large right. hospital here, not that far from my house. So, um, so if you're not working in one of those wards, you're you're sort of separated from the risks. I think. Yeah, I think you know. Uh, there's a lot of analogies uh, to this being wartime, you know, and it, you know, you it, historically, the front line were not, uh, uh, you know, pregnant women were not on the front line. <laughs> Still can yeah. help, but not, not necessarily uh, on the front line. So. I think uh, I agree with that assessment. Uh, I guess one last question is, you know, uh, as obstetric practitioners, we were given a list of uh, limiting uh, ultrasound to limit exposure, et cetera, et cetera. So the pregnant patients are asking, well, does this affect the care of my baby if I'm now limited to a certain amount of ultrasounds, et cetera? Sure, it's a that's a great question, and it's one that I deal with every day. Um, so, as a background, all medical specialties, not just pregnancy or obstetricians or uh, high risk pregnancy specialists like myself, all medical fields have been asked to reduce um, and almost eliminate elective non urgent or non emergent uh, examinations to reduce the spread of the virus and to reduce the exposure to people who may be positive but asymptomatic. Um, so, you know, we do a lot of things in medicine and particularly in the United States that we um, we call, um, uh, I guess, excessive medicine, cautious medicine. Um, <laughs> and those things are cautious <laughs> and they are routine, but they're not always... Um, 
necessary. They're not always required to have a normal pregnancy outcome. So for instance, uh, women undergo a lot of ultrasound exams, particularly in high-risk pregnancies. More than 50% of those ultrasound exams are not necessary. They're done for caution and fear and anxiety and um, and the small chance, the one in a hundred, the one in a thousand chance that we'll pick up something sooner than we would have otherwise. But the vast majority do not change the overall outcome of the pregnancy or long-term risks to a baby or the mother. So what we have done nationally is come out with a set of recommendations uh, that are um, evidence-based, meaning they're, they're supported by information that would give us the, um, the, the bare necessities to get everybody through pregnancy with um, the, the least risk, but not have excessive exposures. And so we did, uh, so the national organizations published a list of exams that could be held off during the pregnancy, unless there was a situation where an obstetrician uh, said, hey, this is an urgent situation. You know, she's measuring very, very small for the dates and we want, we need that ultrasound. As opposed to a, a screening ultrasound where we're doing it just because even though they're the patient feels well, they're not having any bleeding, the baby's moving and active, her weight is perfect, her blood pressure is perfect, her uterus is measuring perfect. Those people can wait for their ultrasound until we get past this high exposure period during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting. We have two types of patients that we've been seeing, two types of pregnant women uh, in our high-risk practice um, those patients who really don't want to come to the hospital and they're happy that we said that it was safe to not have their ultrasound. And we're like, you know, we're going to see you. We want you to wait two or three weeks till we get past this peak in the curve. And then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check things out unless you develop a symptom or your doctor uh, decides that it is urgent. Um, and of course, none of those uh, women are, are turned away when it's necessary. Um, and so far, I think most women have felt very comfortable with that approach. Um, there's, of course, the what we call in, in, what I call, and I think everybody calls the worried well. Uh, right. So we have yes. lots of those in pregnancy. We have lots of pregnant women who are anxious and worried about their baby. And fortunately, we have you know um, hundreds of years of experience knowing that majority of the time, babies and mothers are going to do extremely well. Um, even without lots of ultrasound examinations. But there's a set of symptoms that women can be educated by their obstetricians uh, so that they know when they should call and get seen and that other exams can hold off until we get past this very dangerous uh, period of time. One of the things that we've been doing, for instance, at the University of Pennsylvania, so almost every visit now is a telemedicine visit. So right. we're not, we're not, not seeing our patients. We're seeing them by video or we're talking to them. We're asking a lot of third trimester pregnant women to get a blood pressure cuff at home. You can order them online or you can get a very inexpensive one from Target and they can screen themselves for high blood pressure. Um, you can even, you know, you can get urine dipsticks at home. You can buy them in any CVS or Rite Aid. And you really don't need the obstetrician to do that. We actually have group prenatal visits as well. And we do education online with Zoom meetings like uh, like we're talking right now. Right. Um, and uh, so we have two video platforms that they've unrolled in our health system. And I think, um, 
you know, what we're finding is, is that this is truly catapulting the transition to the, the new modern healthcare system, less waste, um, more targeted exams and less need for patients to, and, and women to, uh, travel to a doctor's office to get really good care. Um, and we can do it in an alternative way. And we're, we're fortunate to learn a lot about that. It, it stinks that it took a pandemic to do it. Right. Um, yeah. You didn't but, want that, but, uh, yeah, but, but I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of things will change, uh, because of, uh, the, what we're doing during the pandemic and, uh, um, a lot of it for the good as well. So, you know, you always like to be a little optimistic and maybe, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. some good things will come out of it in the end. Yeah, I, well, you know, it, it, I think what it does is uh, two things. It humbles the profession in that, you know, we're because, you know, doctors, uh, uh, particularly subspecialists, think they can do anything and fix everything. And uh, it's very humbling when you get a disease that, uh, excuse the expression, but kicks you in the ass and kicks the entire healthcare system in the ass and says, hey, wake up. Um, now, some of that is political and some of that's, uh, you know, preparedness, which most of us individually have very uh, little to do with. But um, but secondly, it also humbles um, the population, you know, that that life is fragile, yeah. you know, and, and that things in the world happen and we have to be uh, uh, we have to be diligent and prepared, but but humbled by the experience so that we can handle it and move on. Yeah. All right, Dr. Debs, thank you. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. But uh, thank you for coming on. You've been very informative. And uh, we shall talk again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, thanks, everybody, and stay safe.